If you would, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We are teaching through Matthew on Sunday mornings, or or, uh, the Sunday morning Bible class. The Sunday morning lessons have been in the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew. So I figured let's just make the whole day about uh, Matthew here tonight. Uh, We're going to look at something uh, in Matthew that popped up in our lesson this morning, and we made reference to it. But there's an idea that is throughout the book. It pops up over and over again. That, uh, that basically maintains that the way that you treat others is the way that God is going to treat you. Uh, so if you are cruel and unforgiving to others, then you're asking for God to be cruel and unforgiving to you. However, the flip side, and this is a very, very positive thing, if you decide that you're going to be a forgiving and caring and merciful person, then you will have a forgiving, caring, and merciful God on your side. And that's a wonderful idea. That's something that can uh, give you a tremendous amount of confidence. But one of the benefits, I think, of, of God acting in that way is that it gives us a strong motivation to be a forgiving and compassionate people. And if he wants to have a kingdom on earth that is defined by compassion and that is defined by mercy, then that's a really strong way that you can encourage mercy. The more merciful you are to others, the more merciful I will be to you. And so even if you are entirely self-interested, you know, a completely selfish act, you should be merciful just out of sheer selfishness because it will ultimately be better for you to be a a forgiving and merciful person than, than otherwise. And Jesus makes this point a number of times when he tries to remind people, God cares more about mercy even than sacrifice. It's like when we read through the Old Testament and we think about, you know, you know how much uh, structure and how much uh, detail was put into the Levitical sacrificial system. And we think that it's so important because of that. And I do think it was important, certainly. But several times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to be condemned or critiqued by the Pharisees. And he'll respond by quoting a passage from Hosea chapter 6 that says, God desires compassion and not sacrifice. That word compassion, it's the same word as mercy, uh, usually. Uh, and, and, and so like when, uh, when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, it's the same word as, as sometimes is translated as compassion. So th- that, that is the word that's there in that quote, that God desires mercy rather than sacrifice. But even in that beatitude, think about it for a second. It's, it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins, this is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Jesus begins his sermon with this list of, of blessings or this list of, of uh, statements about what the fortunate person or the, the, the person who is happy or has the good life is. And one of the things he says is the person who is merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall receive mercy. So that, that's our idea. Notice the way that you respond to others. If you're merciful to others, then you can count on God being merciful to you. And that's why... Going back all the way to chapter 1, you remember, um, you remember uh, Joseph when he found out that Mary was with child. And he knows that he had for, you know, nothing to do with that. Uh, that was a concerning thought on his part. And he was wondering what in the world did Mary do? And, uh, and you could imagine you know, all of the pain and the, the, the hurt and the, the frustration, the embarrassment, probably, possibly anger that he was experiencing at that time. The woman that he had betrothed to, the woman he thought he knew, the woman who was so pure and kind and seemed so honest, now all of a sudden is with child. What in the world happened? He, he, he no doubt was struggling with that. 
And yet, even through it, he didn't turn against her. He didn't turn to have her condemned or to have her punished or to have her publicly ridiculed or humiliated. He didn't try to exercise the the sacrifice in the law for that sin, which would be is a capital crime. No, instead what he did is he chose compassion. And he was going to try to protect her and silently put her away so that she would not face the scorn that would come because of her actions. And then God revealed to him that, uh, that even that he should not do. Uh, she has done nothing wrong. She is with child of the Holy Spirit, and there's something amazing is taking place right now. But Matthew begins with this idea of a righteous man who chooses compassion and mercy, forgiveness, rather than uh, sacrifice and rather than condemnation and judgment. And that's an idea that is throughout Matthew. When Jesus eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees condemn him for it, he quotes Hosea 6, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, th- this, is, this is a common idea, and even there in the Beatitudes, the one who is merciful is the one who will receive mercy. And then you have, you can just, we'll just kind of go through Matthew a little bit. In Matthew chapter 6, the passage where we were this morning, uh, moving from the, the word mercy or merciful to the word forgiveness, uh, if you look right here in the middle of the, the, the prayer, the model prayer that we talked about, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And he asks that God forgives us And he uh, suggests that we have been doing this among each other. So forgive us as we forgive others. Uh, And then right at the end of the prayer, verses 14 and 15, he goes on to describe that aspect of it in a little bit more detail. That is where we find out that becomes a central part of understanding this prayer because he wants to explain that a little bit more fully. For he says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, talking to the people, if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So what do you do for the forgiveness of sins? If you were asked that question by someone, what do you do for the forgiveness of sins? Well, probably a number of thoughts might pop into your head. One of my first thoughts would be like, baptism. You know, that's, that's right there in the Bible. Baptiz- baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That is one. But you know, an interesting one that I, we, I don't know if we necessarily think about it a lot when it comes to what do you do for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, forgive others. If you forgive others, your heavenly Father will be forgiving to you. That's a pretty powerful thing to say. That one of the means by which we receive forgiveness is if we are forgiving to other people. If you look at verse 15, and if you are stingy with forgiveness, you can expect the same. Uh, If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That's a—again, I guess it depends on the way that you view others and and what grudges you are holding. That could be a really encouraging thing, knowing that, hey, if I'm a forgiving person, I have a very forgiving judge— But at the same time, it could be something that could be concerning if you know that you're withholding forgiveness and you think, but they don't deserve forgiveness. Well, one of the things that we'll see as we keep reading Matthew is neither do you. And so that's that's the idea that you have to come to grips with that no one deserves forgiveness. And yet God is more than willing to be overwhelmingly forgiving to us. But he does want us to act in forgiveness towards others. If you look at Matthew chapter 7, this is, this is the same idea. Instead of uh, necessarily talking about mercy and forgiveness, here in Matthew 7, he's going to take kind of the negative side of it. If you're very judgmental, 
then you can have, expect a judgmental God uh, when you face him. But if you look at Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, do not judge, or I think you could very much translate that as condemn. Uh, you know, the, the word there for judge, it's more the negative side of judgment. Not the, you know, to, to judge something, if you were to ask me that, I wouldn't necessarily think of that as a positive or a negative. That's just like an assessment of the value of something. But as it's being used here, and in, in, as it's often used, uh, the word judge is more on the negative side, a condemn, a guilty sentence. And what he's saying is, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. The hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's, again, it's, a, it's kind of a funny image, but you have Jesus here saying, this is what it looks like to God when he sees you, you judging. You, you know, we don't—obviously the speck and the log, those are figurative. Uh, but to God, that's what it would look like. Imagine, imagine someone who has a little bit of sawdust in their eye. And the guy's saying, look at this guy, can't even, can't even keep the sawdust out of his eye. Or you try to get it out of there. And behold, you have the entire log. You have an entire tree branch coming out of It would be a, an absurd and ridiculous thing. When you see Christians— who are judging one another, comparing one another, so often that entails overlooking your own weaknesses and sins and focusing and in, 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 in fixating on someone else's because, well, those are the really bad ones, or those are the ones that uh, I don't struggle with, or those are the ones that, uh, that you know, other people know about. And all of a sudden, we have a tendency, or we, we can very easily fall into the trap of thinking that their sins are the ones that really matter, whereas what God so often sees is this whole huge log in our eye and only a speck in theirs. I think uh, one Later on in Matthew, uh, an idea that might, uh, that might relate to this, it's in Matthew 23. And in Matthew 23, Jesus is, he, it's his final speech in the Gospel of Matthew. There's five major speeches. And by the time he gets to the last one, he is unloading on the, the Pharisees in the harshest words that, uh, that you'll read in, in Matthew. Um, and he begins this list of woe to you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, woe to you, you blind guides, and, and, and all of these words. But one of the things that he says in verse 23, so 23, 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, that's our word mercy, and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. So here's what it looks like. If you are neglecting justice and you're not being merciful— and yet you're looking at someone else's tithe, and you're saying, hey, you have not tithed properly, or you have neglected the proper amount of cumin in this tithe, or, or something like that, while you're condemning them, and you're not, like, even the very act of judging them is a lack of uh, mercy on your own part. And mercy is a much bigger deal, it's a much weightier part of the law, than is the proper, precise, exact tithe. And so 
what you should do is try to do both the best that you can. You know, yes, tithe right. You shouldn't neglect either one of them. You should practice mercy, justice, and faithfulness, and you should get the tithe right. But if you're condemning or critiquing one person and exercising no mercy at all towards that person because of one of the minutia, then all of a sudden you have become that one with that huge log and you don't even notice it. Because, because we often have a tendency to... We can neglect the weightier things. We can neglect mercy. Mercy is not— There are some aspects of our faith that are so visible, and they're so easy to see, and they, you, can, you can, like, mathematically equate them. This is what you want to do. You can equate a tithe. You know, you can figure out the proper number. But how do you, how do you come up with an equation to determine how much mercy someone has? Mercy's—it can go unnoticed because it's often invisible. And so— so throughout Matthew, he's reminding us there are some things that really, really matter. And in fact, nowhere in Matthew says God's going to judge you based on the precision of mint in your tithe or dill in your tithe. That's not what Jesus compares it to. Uh, what Jesus says is God will forgive you based on how forgiving you are. He will be merciful based on how merciful you are. Because those things are even more important. Those are weightier provisions of the law. And so as you go through, you see throughout Matthew this idea pop up uh, repeatedly that God will treat you in the way that you treat others. But what's interesting is there's also kind of the reverse of that idea that the way you treat others is the way that you treat God. So God will treat you the way you treat others, and also the way you treat others is the way that you're treating God. Uh, so one example, this isn't in Matthew, but um, I always think it's an interesting one. In uh, the book of Acts, when Jesus confronts Saul, the persecutor, and he says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And Saul could respond by saying, persecuting you? I haven't done anything to you. Like you, you were crucified before I even started persecuting people. I'm persecuting them. But Jesus... The way you treat his people is directly related to how you're treating him. If you are persecuting the church, if you are persecuting his people, then you're persecuting him. If you're judging or condemning or splitting the church, then you're actually harming the body of Christ. You're harming Christ himself. And in Matthew 25, the, the final—this uh, you know, this is the major, last major speech Jesus gives from chapter 23 to 25—the final parable of chapter 25 is this idea— it's the way that we treat others reflects or, or equals the way that we treat God himself. And so he, he gives this example of a dividing of—this is the great judgment scene. And Jesus' speech is in with this great judgment scene. And he divides up the sheep and the goats. And do you know what determines whether or not someone is a sheep or a goat? Well, verse 34 of Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come. You who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous, the sheep, those on his right, they, they are confused by this. And then they, they answer and say, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king says, truly I say to you, 
to the extent that you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And then he says to those on his left, basically, you saw me thirsty and you walked right past. You saw me hungry. You saw me in dire need and you just passed right by. And they said, I never saw you like that. What, what do you mean? I never would have done that to you, Jesus. And he says, as much as you didn't do it to the least of these, my brothers, you did not do it to me. And so as Matthew is making this profound conclusion to these speeches, he concludes with this idea that those who are unmerciful, those who are not compassionate, those who are not generous should not expect to receive generosity and compassion on that day. As a matter of fact, it's not just people you've neglected. It's Jesus himself you've neglected. It's not just people you've judged. It's Jesus you've judged. The way you treat one another directly reflects the way that you treat Jesus. And so throughout, there's this powerful connection. And that is something that should motivate us to be overwhelmingly forgiving, merciful, and kind to one another, to help one another. Because the way we treat one another, it, is, it, is, it equals the way that we treat God, and it's how we can expect God to treat us when the day of judgment comes. Um, so, having said all of that, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to look at a parable. <laughs> we're going to look at a parable in Matthew chapter 18 that I think, um, that I think uh, makes this point quite well, and then we'll, we'll draw our lesson to a close. But in Matthew chapter 18, there's a, a lengthy discussion about forgiveness, um, and what this is. This is the fourth uh, speech of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, Uh, and it centers largely around the idea of forgiveness and reaching out to someone who has wronged you or wronged the community of faith or left the community of faith. And, And how, if we're a community defined by mercy, forgiveness, and compassion, how do we reach out to someone who has left? Well, it's like, you leave the 99 and you go search for that one and you rejoice when they come back. Like, you, you care. Like, the one who has left you and abandoned you, the thought might be easy to be like, oh, well, forget them. They left us. Who cares about them? Like, that, that would be one way you could respond to it. But what Jesus is saying is that one who left leaves becomes so valuable that you would leave the 99 behind to go find that person and rejoice overwhelmingly when that person is returned. And what about the person who, uh, who has wronged you? Well, you take step after step after step to try to bring that person back. When you get to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, he says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Notice who's taking the initiative there to bring about reconciliation. It's not actually the one who sinned. And you might think, well, no, it should be him. He's the one who did what was wrong. He's the one who should make it right. Instead, Jesus is saying, the one who sins is still loved so much that you go to that person. I mean, the the grandest picture of that is our relationship with God. We we are the ones who have sinned against him. We are the ones who have rebelled against him. We are the ones who uh, have rejected his goodness and his love and become enemies with God. And Who was expected to take the step towards reconciliation? I mean, you could easily say, well, we should do that, right? But who was it who sent his most precious gift, his only son, Jesus, to earth to die to bring about that reconciliation? Who who made the move? God made the move to us by sacrificing the most precious thing he could just to forgive us of the wrongs that we committed against him. 
It's like, that's mind-boggling. Like, we are the ones who should have been making the sacrifice. We are the ones who should have been sacrificed. Instead, it was God, the one who was wronged, who also takes the brunt of that suffering just to forgive That's how highly he valued forgiveness. And even while Jesus is suffering on the cross to forgive sinners of their sins, he's saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And that's the idea that we're supposed to carry with us as a community that is defined by peacemaking, reconciliation, mercy, and forgiveness. Like, that's who we're supposed to be. We should be the most forgiving people on earth because we're trying to imitate a God who would do, who would give his most precious gift, who would give himself in order to forgive us. And so that's why when your brother sins, you go to him and you try to talk this thing out. You try to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation. And if he will not listen to you, what do you do? You say, man, that guy, not only did he do the wrong thing, he also rejected his opportunity for forgiveness. No, take a couple other people with you and go again. Don't give up on this person. Keep trying. And if he doesn't listen to those people, then as a community of believers, go again. As the whole church, go again. And if he decides he wants nothing to do with that, well, you do honor that decision. Let, if he wants to be an outsider, let him be an outsider. I mean, that, that's again, we, we don't compel, we don't force, uh, but you show radical love and opportunity. And if the day comes that he does so want to come back, then like that sheep returning to the fold, you rejoice uh, at the one who has returned. So that's kind of what Jesus has been saying leading up to Peter thinking about all of this and asking a question in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? Seven's a pretty impressive number. I mean, could you imagine, like, like, we know probably the answer that Jesus is about to give here. Jesus is about to blow seven out of the water. But, like, imagine someone really sinning against you seven times. Imagine you have a babysitter, and seven times in a row, they steal money from you. How often are you going to forgive that person? I'm telling you what, after two, I'm like, all right, we're done. <laughs> you know, like, I, that would be— <laughs> That would be a difficult thing. And, and Peter, I think, is pretty, pretty generous here. Uh, you know, some have said that in Jewish thought, the idea of like three strikes and you're out was kind of the, the, the standard, you know. You forgive someone three times, and after that, look, they're, they're doing this on purpose. Uh, so Peter doubles the three and then throws one on for good measure, makes it the good complete number of seven, the perfect number. You know, seven has all kinds of theological significance. And he says, what about seven times? Well, if you forgive someone seven times, the world's going to look at you like you're a sucker, like you're someone who's just being taken advantage of over and over again. Jesus looks at you and says, not nearly enough. How about 70 times seven? Uh, Why would Jesus take it to an absurd number like that? Because like we've been talking about, he's rooting this idea in the forgiveness of God. And he's ultimately the one that we're imitating here. And how many times... Do we want God to be forgiving to us? Three? Seven? I, let's, let's, let's up that a bit. Uh, I, I know my life, and I know my strengths and my weaknesses, and I know that one probably by far outweighs the other, and I need an awful lot of forgiveness. And so if I am going to approach God, I want to approach a forgiving and merciful God. And so I should be—I should try to— demonstrate that in the world around me. So he tells them 
not seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. And now he begins a story. A king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he'd begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Okay, so 10,000 talents. Some of you might have a footnote in your Bibles uh, that kind of that, uh, explains what this is. Basically, a talent in most estimates is about 20 years of labor. Like the amount you would get paid working for 20 years is a talent. And this guy owes 10,000 of them. Some estimates put the number at like $6 billion. The point is, it, just like Jesus saying 70 times 7, like it's, it's an absurd number of times to, to forgive someone. <laughs> this is an absurd amount to fall into debt somehow. How in the world did you borrow $6 billion from this king? Uh, like th- this, is, this is supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to be something like you read it and you think, that's an unrealistic amount of debt to be in. That's an unrealistic number of times to forgive someone. Yes. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Uh, this is an unrealistic amount of debt to be in, in number of times to forgive someone. But he, he uh, approaches the king. He is in debt billions of dollars. And verse 25, but since he did not have the means to repay, you, you don't say. You know, <laughs> what slave has that kind of money? Uh, since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that they had and a repayment to be made. Think of the poor decisions financially that this man has made to put his family in this dire situation. Like he has, you, there's no way using prudence and wisdom, you get yourself $6 billion in debt to a king. Uh, and so whose fault is it that he owes this? I'm betting it's probably his. And yet he's in this horrible situation that's now going to cost him his life, his freedom, his family, everything that he has. And what can he do? Can, can he work out a payment plan? All right, give me 30,000 years and I'll start paying you back month by month. Like, no, that's not going to work. What are you going to do? Like, how are you possibly going to pay this back? And he can't. He can't even begin to. Like, he can't do anything to pay this debt back. Do you know what he can do? He can fall down and beg for a king that desires mercy rather than sacrifice. That's what he can do. He can beg to be forgiven even though he doesn't deserve it. Verse 26, so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. <laughs> have patience with me. How much patience is that going to take? You know, like what? That, that's a lot of patience. You're not going to live long enough to do it, to put a scratch into this uh, amount. Anyway, he falls down and the Lord of that slave felt mercy or felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. The king sees someone who's in need. He sees someone who has nothing. He sees someone who, I mean, there's no doubt he owes him. There's no doubt that this is the guy who is in debt and the king is the one who is in the right. And yet the king responds with compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And he offers that to this man. I mean, the weight that no doubt was lifted off of his shoulders that day has to be just incredible. Uh, the way that the, the magnitude of the concern, he could have lost everything. He could have lost his whole family, his children sold into slavery, all of his possessions, like everything that he had was, was gone because of his poor decisions. And now 
He is just, because he begged, he's just forgiven of everything. Well, what's he going to do now? You would think he's going to go on and be the most grateful, kind, forgiving person you could possibly imagine. Well, let's read. Um, Verse 28. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. The next thing he does is he goes and he finds someone. Now, that is, that, that's an uncomfortable amount of money right there. A hundred denarii. A hundred, a denarius is about a day's labor. So a hundred denarii, I mean, that would, that's a couple months of work. Uh, that, that's, a, that's, that's nothing to sneeze at, okay? You know, it's, it's not six billion dollars, but it's not nothing. Uh, it would probably help him if he got this back. So it's something he cares about. In fact, it's something he cares about more than he cares about the person who owes him. He cares more about the money this man can give him more than he cares about the man himself. And that's why he not only wants repayment, he is an absolute tyrant about it. And he grabs him by the neck. He uses force and violence and he demands that he is paid back immediately. And all of a sudden, the one who just saw the most beautiful demonstration of grace and mercy that he's ever seen in his life is now completely refusing to even for a moment entertain mercy towards another person. And so he grabs the guy by the neck and chokes him and demands to be paid back. And what can this man do? This man might not have that much money. That's, that's, that's a bit of money to a hundred days labor. And, and he's, he can't repay it. And so what does he say? His fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. You know what? Maybe over time he actually could have. Like, this is, a, this is a reasonable, maybe give him a year, you know, make payments. You could work something out, you know. The man says, I, I'll repay you. When, when the, slave, the first slave said it, I mean, that's a lie. He's not going to repay the king. He's just begging. And he says he'll do something he cannot do. This is a situation where the guy actually might be able to do it. It might take some time. But he falls on the ground again. And he begs. He says the same thing that the first slave said. You're supposed to connect these two because they're, they're playing the same role here. And yet, while the first slave received compassion, mercy, and forgiveness, when he looks at that man who is begging to be forgiven, or who, not even begging to be forgiven, just begging for patience and and an opportunity, it says, but he was unwilling, and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay what he owed. Now, other people saw this. Um, The way that you treat people, it's not usually just between you and them people tend to find out. Uh, When you are selfish and cruel and judgmental, word spreads. If a church develops a reputation of being selfish and cruel and judgmental, word tends to spread. Um, Right here, word has spread about this. So verse 31, so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and they came and they reported to their Lord what had happened. Then summoning him, the Lord, this is the the king who, who forgave him so much, He calls him and he says, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger this time. Notice uh, the, the verse 27. The first time the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him. He was moved with compassion. Now he's moved with anger. Why? Because the love of God is supposed to spread from us to others. 
the mercy of God is supposed to spread from us to others. The forgiveness that God extends to us is supposed to spread from us to others. And if we try to take it for ourselves and hoard it and refuse to give it to others, that is an an extreme misuse of what God has given to us and what he wants us to do with it. It's, It's us refusing to be the people that he has called us to be. He has called us to be forgiving and merciful. And yet we have taken that and we've kept it for ourselves and refused to share his goodness with others. That'll make a king angry. So moved with anger, he handed him over to uh, the, the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father, this is the conclusion, will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Pretty strong words about the need of forgiveness. How do you do that? How do you take this message, whether we're talking about forgiveness or mercy or just this story right here, and apply it? Well, I think you need a couple of things. One, I think you need humility. If you're going to forgive others, you need to have the humility to recognize how much you've been forgiven. If you basically look at yourself and you're like, okay, I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. But I'm pretty good, and God's pretty lucky to have me on his team. Uh, then you're not going to be overly appreciative of the forgiveness that God has given you. The failure to recognize your own failures, the failure to recognize your own flaws and sins and debts will cause you to not recognize the grace and the goodness of God. And I think that sometimes is one of the the major issues that that we have. If you don't feel the need to be forgiven, then you're not going to seek forgiveness, you know? And even if it's offered to you, you're like, well, what's the big deal? I'm fine. You know, I I was doing pretty good already. And, And so if you don't have an honest view of your own weaknesses and sins and the depth of the grace of God that brought about your forgiveness, then you're not going to be able to to share that with others because you don't feel. So one thing, humility and accurate self-image, I think, is a helpful thing to recognize our own sinfulness. That helps you recognize the goodness of God. Number two, gratitude. If you do recognize your need for forgiveness and you recognize that you serve a God who loved you enough to give his son to die for you, that should fill you with overwhelming gratitude and thanksgiving towards that God. Uh, that thanksgiving and gratitude then becomes the motivation by which we respond to others. And so number three, I would say love. And this is something that Jesus talks about quite a bit in Matthew. We are supposed to love God and we are supposed to love one another. What, what was the problem with the second slave? Um, or the, I, yeah, I guess the slave that was forgiven, the one who would not forgive. I, I think it probably comes down to... <laughs> Even if he recognized how much he was forgiven, even if he was thankful to the king, he didn't then turn and see the need to extend that to anyone else, probably because, I mean, maybe you get into $6 billion worth of debt because you love money. Uh, And here there's a chance that someone owes him some money. And what does he care more about? That person who's in need, just like he was, or the money that he could get. Seems to me he probably cared more about the money. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus will say some things about money. Like even just if you keep reading into Matthew chapter 19, there's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And Jesus is going to tell him, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. You'll have eternal life. You'll be in the kingdom. And the man walks away 
un, seemingly unwilling to do it, grieved in his heart because he had so much. And then Jesus says that it's actually harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. It's like, it, it's not easy to do. <laughs> now, don't, don't lose heart. Uh, with God, all things are possible. And he goes on to say that. Uh, you know, with, with the disciples hear that, I think, wait, really? Like a, a wealthy person, it's impossible? So who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with people it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. So the door is still open, but the idea is it's very hard because wealth has a way of becoming our master. And Jesus also says, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other, or this one, but it's really hard to be dedicated to two different masters. In fact, it's impossible. You'll choose one over the other one. If you try to have wealth and God as your primary concerns in life, then you're going to be thrown off course. Uh, I think that probably has something to do with the man who, instead of taking a financial hit and exercising mercy for someone else, he chose rather to love the wealth and to condemn the man, even when his master was overwhelmingly merciful to him. Uh, And so having love for one another, even more than love for possessions, is uh, central. Finally, I would also say, and this is, uh, if we're going to do this, you need humility to recognize God's forgiveness. You need gratitude for that forgiveness. You need love for your fellow people, even your enemies, who you're supposed to be forgiving. But then also just sheer obedience to God. God wants us to obey him, and he tells us to be forgiving. And so uh, one reason you should do it is because you have a master in heaven who wants you to do it. And if you've given your life to him, if you've given your life to Jesus as Lord, then you do what Jesus says. And one of the things that Jesus wants for us is to be a community that is defined. One of the reasons that we're that light of the world and that salt of the earth and that city on the hill is, I think, because— We are people who are merciful and receive mercy. We uh, receive mercy from God. We extend it to others. We extend it to others, and we receive it from God. And uh, that should be part of our central identity as the people of God. There should be no forgiving people, no more forgiving people on earth than Christians. Uh, so that is, is an idea that runs throughout Matthew, and you see it, you know, in page after page after page after page. And I think in the same way you can see that all throughout Matthew, we should make sure that people can see that all throughout our community, all throughout our church, and all throughout our lives. Make sure that that's something that we rejoice in and that we extend to others the mercy, compassion, and forgiveness of God. And if there's anyone here who owes a debt to God, he is more than willing with love and grace to wipe it away in forgiveness to wash away your debt and your sins right now. That heavy weight that this man felt, you may be feeling, and you can leave today with that weight lifted, with a God who loves you and is gracious and compassionate, so much so that he gave his son to die because he loved you. And if we can help you uh, become a follower of his, have those sins washed away in baptism and live for him, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.